Welcome to this podcast from DTB. My name is David Fazakli and I'm DTB's Deputy Editor. Hello, I'm James Cave, Editor-in-Chief. Uh, we normally bring you a monthly conversation about the highlights of the forthcoming issue of DTB, but today we've got a special podcast just about the COVID-19 vaccine. Yes, uh, obviously a very hot um, topic. We now have news of three or even more um, possible COVID-19 vaccines being um, produced. Uh, David, you've written an editorial about this entitled, We Need More Than the Mums Test. Do you want to tell us a little bit about um, what you've discussed in your editorial? Yes, uh, thank you. So as you say, exciting time, possibility of, well, at the moment, one two or even three vaccines appearing against COVID-19. We've had the initial excitement of the first flush of the results, albeit from company press releases. Um, But now we wait for the regulators to do their bit and review the data on quality, safety and efficacy before deciding if they can be licensed. So the big question is, what happens once we enter this massive vaccination programme? And I think the big unknown still at the moment is how many people will want to come forward for vaccination. Um, Suggestions are that from one survey that up to 64% of people said they would be keen or very keen to get vaccinated. But we know that what people say, particularly in opinion polls, isn't always what they do. Um, So we may not know until it starts what the the numbers are going to be. So the the NHS gearing up this massive vaccination programme, biggest in its history, But alongside that, what what we pick up in the editorial and what I think is is crucial for patients or the public is what information they're going to get on the vaccines when they when they first appear. Well, it's it's a fascinating thing. I think it's a very high risk area that the government has gone into because there's been enormous amount of uh, publicity about these vaccines. And as, as you say in the editorial, actually, not one is yet licensed. And I can think back through my um, almost decade with the DTB and my 30 years in, in medicine, there have been so many false dawns with treatments that have got right to the very end of um, their phase three trials and then stumbled at the last, um, the last jump, if you like. And so I think there's been an awful amount of noise about this and we still don't actually have any licensed vaccines. So yes, certainly patients are interested. I think fascinatingly, um, they, they all have got very wise, I think, to um, the, the press releases now and, and, and the sort of noise and, and they're far more reticent now than they used to be at accepting what's being said to them. So we're, we're just trying to work out the logistics um, locally and how we're going to provide this. And I think the logistics is going to be an enormous issue. Um, and as you say, at a time when the NHS is, is traditionally very busy anyway. But alongside that, when assuming that the first vaccine gets licensed and then people start to turn up for, um, for vaccination, what information are we going to give people about the vaccine to say, right, this, this is what we know about it. This is what we don't know about it. This is what we know about safety. These are the adverse effects that we saw in the clinical trials. You know, 40,000 people, this is how many adverse effects were reported. This is what happened to people who had those adverse effects. And then what about the, what about the effectiveness of the vaccine? What, what actually do we know in terms of preventing disease? We know 
There is something about it preventing people developing COVID, but is that mild COVID, moderate COVID, severe disease? Um, we still don't know much about onward transmission, but I think it's, it's important that people get this information up front so that they can make an informed decision before agreeing for, for vaccination. Um, you know, I was slightly alarmed when, when you know, we heard the press or the conference with, with people saying that you know, I'll be recommending it to my, to my parents to have it. Well, that, that's fine, but I think everyone needs to, needs to be able to make their own decision and have that information presented to them in such a way that they can understand what it means for them if they accept vaccination. Um, it's a fascinating area. And um, I think it's one where, in particular, when there's this such a, a pent-up demand that we must get on and do this, there's a risk that it'll be rushed and done badly. Um, and that's, that's never a good thing. If the regulators approve these things quickly, um, they will be rolled out quickly. But at the same time, I do worry that if we're not giving people sufficient information, um, they won't be able to make a, a balanced decision on, on what they want, want to do. You know, you, we hope that the information will be, or the, the results of the um, analysis by the MHRA will be very positive, that these, these will be effective products and that they will start to you know, help us move forward with, with, with dealing with COVID. But we do need the information. Um, and at the moment, we're only getting little, little bits from press releases. Exactly. And I think that, um, and there's an element here with some of these vaccines that, you know, they've been procured, but actually, you know, is a, is a vaccine that can't be transported, is frozen at minus 70, has to be diluted, has to have consent given in a, in a very clear way, because it's a very new type of vaccine, that actually we're required to make people sit for 15 minutes after. Is that really fit for purpose? Because if you start looking at the timing that required to put a throughput of patients through your immunization sort of regime, that's going to be a completely different format to our current flu clinics where we're able to perhaps vaccinate 500 people in an afternoon. We're going to have to have pods. We're going to have to have places for people to be able to discuss, you know, in, in a quiet way, not, not feeling pressurized about their concerns. And as you say, hopefully a lot of that will be done beforehand so patients are informed before they even arrive but it just means that we're looking at perhaps only being able to see 40 people an hour through the immunization now if we've got thousands of people to immunize we're talking about thousands of hours worth of vaccination clinics that we've got to do on top of the normal work we do and that's really worrying the frontline GPs locally are very concerned about, you know, right in the middle of winter when we already uh, really struggle to, to keep ahead of the numbers of people wanting to see us because they are sick, to then have to put thousands of hours in for an immunization program, um, I think is a big, big ask that hasn't really been thought through at a higher level. And I think that therefore the, the, the challenge particularly focusing on, on, on what we've covered in the, in the editorial, is, is for the NHS uh, to present the information ahead of the vaccination programme so that people can be sent it, they can receive it in different formats so that it gets to them, and they've got that time so that you, you eventually it will cut down the discussion time. Because with, 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 if you're presenting this people to people at the first point you see them, 
just before you're planning to vaccinate them, that will clearly slow the process down hugely. At least if they've had it ahead of time and are able to, to think about it, then you might at least cut down that time. But, but I think you're right. I think the, the, the logistics of this is, are going to be very, very challenging. I noticed that the GMC just issued new guidance on consent, I think literally earlier this month, where it very clearly states that this has got to be a proper, uh, you know, discussion amongst equals, if you like, that really it has to be clear that, you know, this is not just, you're not just doing consent, but you are, you know, you're actually properly addressing people's concerns, making sure that they understand it properly. So it's, um, it's going, as you say, I think consent um, is going to be important um, because I think it's just really important with anything like this, that people go into it with their eyes open, absolutely clear they understand everything about it. So that, uh, you know, I think that it then ends up being a positive um, and right thing to do. Yes, and, and within that is the, is the challenge of how do you tailor information so that it's, it's, it's for people of different ages, uh, people who are at low risk, high risk, medium risk of, of COVID, because obviously your, your decision changes slightly on, on your risk, but equally you need to know that if I choose to get vaccinated, how does that help the community as a whole? Do we know that? Um, and if I don't get vaccinated, what are the implications of, of that? And, and crucially, in the, certainly in the early stages, if we do get vaccinated, what does that mean for social distancing and, and the other preventive measures we're taking now? Until there is sufficient coverage, they will have to continue. And that needs to be made quite clear that you can't just say, right, I've had my vaccine. I don't need to worry anymore. So there are some very key messages that need to go alongside this. I agree. Um, and as you say, I think the difficulty for a lot of those questions is that we're not going to know a lot of those questions for a while. You know, um, how long will this immunization last and give you sort of immunity from um, the disease is, is a really key question. And are we going to have to modify it each year? Um, but uh, yeah, lots, lots to think about and lots to do in the next few weeks. Absolutely. And if, if you can kind of misquote Charles Dickens, kind of it's, it's, it's the worst of times and possibly the best of times. But um, we wait for the regulator um, and wait to see what information is going to accompany the, the vaccines. Uh, and then hopefully, you know, we'll, we'll be on to the next stage and it will be a posit positive process. Absolutely. And I think we've, we've, I don't know, I think we forget sometimes, but out of all the therapeutics we do in, in medicine, immunizations are probably the most impressive and important of all of them. You know, if you think and you look at the impact that immunizations have had on world health, they are crucial. Um, so, um, you know, I, I think, you know, as the drug and therapeutics bulletin, we are uh, absolutely flying the flag for immunizations, but I think it's about doing things right. Yes, and getting it right so that it doesn't then almost ruin the, ruin the kind of tradition of vaccination. So that if we don't do something now that then undermines people's confidence in the whole immunization process um, so that we keep, you know, we keep this, this confidence in vaccination um, and don't undermine it. Yeah, I, th I think that's the crucial thing. Having lived through the measles, mumps and rubella, the MMR vaccine scandal um, with Andrew Wakefield back in the 1990s, um, you know, we've lived through that and it, and it was appalling, you know, 
children, people have been um, severely disabled and died because of poor vaccine sort of information. So this is this is this is vital. Okay, thank thank you very much. Um, you can find this podcast and all our podcasts and articles on our website at gtb.bmj.com. And if you enjoy listening to us, uh, please consider leaving us a rating or comment on the iTunes site. We would love to hear from you. You can find a link to the DTB iTunes podcast page on the notes that accompany the podcasts. Alternatively, you can email us directly at dtb.bmj.com. Thanks for listening once again, and we hope you'll be able to join us for our next podcast.